want to find your seat again. Uh, we'll get cracking in a moment. Hope you're managing to stay reasonably warm. I do apologize again for the temperature today. I've actually got an illustration a little bit later, which will hopefully um, put some context into uh, the, uh, the environment in this place this morning. <coughs> Well, I'll start with a story, actually. There was this man, he was uh, approaching middle age, and uh, his life was very comfortable, and uh, he felt an emptiness inside, a real longing in his life for something more, something a little bit more uh, deep and meaningful. So he decided that he should join a monastery, okay? And uh, the abbot told him that um, the road ahead for him was going to be very difficult, very challenging, but he said, that's fine. The abbot says, yeah, but you've got to give up all your earthly possessions. You've got to give up all your comforts. You've got to pray every day, five times a day. And you've got to remain totally silent in this monastery. You're only allowed to say, he said, two words every five years. Okay. So five years go by and the Pope comes to visit the monastery. And the Pope says to this guy, he says, how's it going? And the man says, um, bed, hard. So the Pope says, oh, terribly sorry about that. I'll ask the abbot to find you a, an old beat-up mattress from a charity shop or somewhere to make you a little bit more comfortable. And five years later, the Pope comes back again. And he says, uh, so how are you, my son? Is everything okay? And the man says, uh, food, cold. So the Pope says, oh, I do apologize. I'll see to it personally, but the chef makes sure that your porridge is at least lukewarm every day for you. So five more years pass by and the Pope comes back again to this monastery. And he says, uh, nice to see you again. How are you doing? Is everything well now? And the man says, I quit. That was his <laughs> five words for the year, for the five, two words for the five years. And the Pope says, well, of course you quit. I'm not surprised you've been here 15 years and all you've done is complain. <laughs> now, it may surprise you to hear this, but hardship and struggle are actually standard components of the Christian life. Yeah, Jesus actually promised that his disciples would have big trouble in this world. But he also said that nothing and no one would take away their joy and their joy would be complete and that his joy would be in them to the end. And these two things, relentless opposition and attrition on the one hand and invincible joy on the other are not contradictory. They go hand in hand for us. Now, last week, Michael preached on uh, the first part of Colossians chapter 1, which outlines in stunning detail and clarity the reign and the command and the authority and the sovereignty of Christ over all things. What an amazing passage it is, and what a blessing to be able to preach on it. It's one of the mountain peaks of the New Testament, and it gives us a view of Christ's supremacy, which is simply breathtaking when we see it. But the verses immediately following, which I've got today, bring us down with a bump. The last thing you would think Paul would talk about after that amazing description of Christ's incomparable greatness 
is suffering and affliction and how brutal life can be. But that, my friends, is exactly what he does. Here's what it says, Colossians 1, beginning at verse 24. Now I rejoice, underline that word, rejoice in what I am suffering for you. And I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that's been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, the Lord's people, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles, that's all the nations of the world, the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully worked in me. I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea and for all those who have not met me personally. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight. Note this word, delight. After all this talk of suffering, affliction, and sweaty hard work, I delight to see how disciplined and firm your faith in Christ is. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much once again for your word and that you speak to us today. And may these not be for us today just dead words printed on a page, but your living, alive, true, life-giving, imparting word to us today. In Jesus' name, Father, amen. The great 20th century preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones once said this, there is no grosser or greater misrepresentation of the Christian message than that which depicts it as an offering, sorry, as offering a life of ease with no battle and struggle at all. Sooner or later, every believer discovers that the Christian life is a battleground and not a playground. Smith Wigglesworth, an illiterate plumber from Bradford who became an apostolic leader with legendary faith and a ministry of amazing signs and wonders, he actually reportedly raised 14 people from the dead in his life. He put it this way, 
Great faith only comes from great fights. Great testimonies only come from great tests. And great triumphs only from great trials. He had a remarkable way with words for somebody who couldn't read or write. Um, Amazing guy. Now, I, I confess, am a bit of a grumbler at times. Do you like a bit of a moan? I mean, I felt like having a bit of a mumble this morning when I came in here and, and, and felt the temperature. I confess, I like a bit of a moan, especially when I think that life is not being particularly fair to me. And I know to my shame that if I spent as much time praying as I do grumbling, before long, there would be nothing left to grumble about. I know that. I know it in my heart, but I still do it. I still moan and complain. But complaining and griping are not acceptable responses to trials and troubles for Christians. They're not appropriate, the Bible says. In fact, the Bible says, do everything without grumbling or arguing. Because when you do so, you will stand out and you will shine among your warped and crooked generation, it says, like stars in the sky. That's how you stand out. And it's saying here that people notice your positivity under pressure. People notice that. They see there's something remarkable about you. The Soviet dictator Stalin was absolutely paranoid about any perceived threat to his authority. And many intellectuals, even communist ones, were subjected to forced labor under his purges. One of them was called Evgenia Ginsberg. She was an atheist, Jewish academic, and for 18 years she was subjected to hard labor in a Siberian gulag. And in her autobiography called Journey into the Whirlwind, she recalls a time when she was forced to work as a tree logger. And one bitterly cold day, minus 10 degrees, much colder than in here, she remembers a group of Christians requesting not to work, but to spend the day in prayer because that day was Easter Sunday. And they said to these Soviet prison guards, We will do overtime and work double tomorrow. Only let us pray today. Well, their request was refused. And instead, they were prodded with rifle butts in their backs back into the forest to continue their work and cut down trees. And when they got there, they quietly put down their axes and gathered together in a little circle to pray and to praise the resurrected Christ. And when they were seen doing this, they were beaten up and dragged out onto a frozen lake. And they were made to take their shoes and socks off and stand on the ice barefoot. And Evgenia Ginsberg, this atheist intellectual, she was so deeply moved by what she saw. She was affected deeply by what she witnessed. And she marveled at how these believers just stood there barefoot but dignified on the ice, their heads bowed in prayer. And after a a while, a long while, all the other prisoners begged these guards through tears to stop the cruelty uh, because it went on for hours and they, they genuinely wondered if anyone could survive it. 
But then Ginsburg reflected in her book on the remarkable fact that nobody, not one who had stood for so long on this ice, became sick. Afterwards, none complained. They counted themselves, in fact, blessed to be seen as worthy to suffer persecution for Christ and to be able to celebrate his resurrection in whatever way they could. And that is a memory that never left her all her life. Now, that is an extreme case, isn't it? But as we're going to see this morning from this passage of Scripture, the normal, appropriate Christian response to hardship and adversity, wherever we live and whoever we are, is joy and delight, actually, not complaining and grumbling. And as we move from the end of chapter 1 into the beginning of chapter 2 in Colossians, in just a few verses, Paul mentions suffering, afflictions, strenuously contending, and hard struggle. That's what he's got on his mind here. But the passage begins with Paul saying he rejoices because of it, and it ends with him saying he delights in spite of it. Well, we'll delve into all that in just a minute together. But first of all, we've got to get to grips with, I think, what is the hardest verse in Colossians to understand. Jill Jackson disagrees with me. She thinks he's got the hardest one in two weeks' time, but it's definitely here, I think. And maybe it jarred on you a bit when I read it earlier. It's in verse 24, where Paul says this, I fill up uh, in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. What on earth is that about? How can there be anything lacking in Christ's afflictions? How can there be? Jesus' death, his unique giving of himself on the cross made a full, perfect, and sufficient satisfaction, sacrifice, and offering for the sins of the whole world, as the Anglican Book of Common Prayer puts it. How can there possibly be anything still lacking in Christ's afflictions? What does this even mean? And the answer is that Christ's suffering for sin on the cross is indeed complete. He himself said from the cross, it is finished. And Hebrews 10 explains in detail that Christ's death is once for all. It is all over. It is a complete and all-sufficient sacrifice to cleanse us thoroughly and decisively from every foul stain of every sin and perfect us forever. That is what Christ's death has done. So Paul is not talking here about Christ's redemptive sufferings then. He's talking about Christ's ongoing afflictions now. Now, did you know that Christ still suffers today? Have you ever thought about that? It actually surprised me a bit when I was preparing this. Christ still suffers today. And to help you get your mind around that, think of an expectant mother in labor. One of the things I found remarkable when witnessing our four children being born is that the extreme physical pain that Kathy 
endured seemed to completely vanish as soon as she had a baby in her arms. And it actually made me a little bit suspicious, to tell the truth, that she had actually suffered any pain at all. Wait a minute. What if she's just putting it on? Like a footballer rolling around trying to get a penalty off the referee, feigning injury. All I can say, brothers and sisters, is I very much regret sharing that theory with Kathy <laughs> before hastily retracting every single word. But here's the thing. Although the labor pains are all over and forgotten as soon as the baby is born, the glorious new era of changing dirty nappies, colic, sore nipples, endless crying, sleepless nights, projectile vomiting, and all the rest is only just beginning. Suffering is only just starting. And likewise, Christ's unique once-for-all suffering is over. And through it, we are born again into new life. Oh, happy day when Jesus washed my sins away. But whenever the church is attacked and afflicted, Christ feels it too. And that's why when Saul, as he was then, was converted on the Damascus Road, Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Remember that. Saul was actually persecuting Christians, throwing them in jail. But whenever anyone does that, Jesus says, it's not you they're rejecting. Not, you, not really, it's, it's actually me. I wonder if you've ever thought about it that way before. So what it's saying here in verse 24 is this. Christ still suffers affliction now whenever his church is rejected and attacked, as Jesus said it would be. And Paul says, do you know what? I'm actually happy to share in these afflictions because they contribute to making the church stronger, not weakening. And, I'm, and I'm, I'm happy about that. It's a bit like in Acts chapter 5. Do you remember when the apostles are given a beating for preaching Christ, having been ordered not to, they don't care, but just do it anyway. And they come out rejoicing after this flogging for being counted worthy of suffering disgrace for his name. And James makes a similar point in James chapter 1. Consider it pure joy, not drudgery, not misery, not misfortune. Joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. I remember when our daughter Anna got chickenpox when she was very small. Uh, she was itching. She was tired. She was cranky. Uh, tears rolling down her cheeks. And her pretty little face was covered in ugly red spots. And all I could say to her was, my sweet darling Anna, it's not always going to feel like this. It's going to get better. And although she couldn't understand it and she couldn't really express what she was feeling, I knew that that chicken pox was actually a blessing for her because all the while it was building up immunity in her. I couldn't explain that to her, but I knew the suffering was good for her in the long term. I read this month a news report about a pastor in Missouri, USA, 
And he had to apologize to his congregation after throwing a tantrum in the pulpit and insulting his congregation. He had to apologize. He was upset because they had not honored him by buying him a luxury watch. Pretty amazing, isn't it? By contrast, if we were to examine the Apostle Paul's body on the evidence of 2 Corinthians chapter 10, we'd see traces on his wrists and ankles from iron shackles. We'd find marks all over him from severe floggings. We'd uncover a back that had been subject to 39 lashes on five separate occasions. That's 195 scars. We'd find bruises from being beaten with sticks. We'd find evidence of stoning on him and a face that could not mask a life of frequent sleepless nights, constant danger, and daily pressures from the churches who didn't do a word he said. No wonder at his conversion, God said, this man, Saul, is my chosen instrument. I'm going to show him how much he must suffer for my name. Yes, but why did Paul say, I rejoice in my sufferings. Why didn't he say, you know, I have to put up with them? He actually rejoiced in them. Was it some kind of weird masochistic asceticism that he had? You know, in the Middle Ages, you may know this, people used to wear shirts of rough animal skin, uh, run animal hair to irritate the skin. And at the time of the plague, bizarrely, it's weird, people used to whip themselves as an expression of piety and holiness. People subjected themselves to the pointless misery of climbing upstairs on their knees in the hope of making themselves more worthy. This is not that. It's not that. Paul rejoicing in his sufferings is not nothing to do with that. It's not about joining a monastery and only being able to say two words every five years, okay? That's not really what God wants us to do. Paul tells us in this passage why he was so willing to sweat blood and pour out his life and share in Christ's afflictions. It was his passion under God to work with all his might, all his strength to build up mature and solid and strong and resilient churches. That, he said, is something worth giving my life for. Now, you can trust leaders who are conscious of God's call upon them to pour out their lives into shepherding God's people and building up the church. Avoid those who always seem to gravitate to a life of comfort and ease and luxury watches. Paul never tired of laboring to make the church healthier and stronger. In fact, he loved it. And that is the hallmark, a hallmark of trustworthy church leadership. And I'm not saying, by the way, that church leaders should never take a day off or never go on a holiday. So even Jesus went away to solitary places to unwind and to replenish. Even Jesus needed to do that. And God created the Sabbath. He created Sabbath for us, rest from work, so we don't burn out. I'm just saying we rest after work. We don't rest after more rest, okay? 
Right, in verse 25, Paul talks about the commission that God gave him to present the word of God in its fullness. It wasn't a career move for him. It wasn't just, I know, I'll go into the ministry and I'll add a little bit more religion into people's lives. That's not the way Paul thought at all. No, God called him. He was conscious that God had drawn him out from where he was to this calling and he'd appointed him as a leader in the church. In verse 28, he talks about proclaiming, admonishing, that means warning, and teaching everyone with all wisdom with the aim of presenting everybody mature in Christ. And we actually need admonishing, by the way. Warnings are necessary for us, not just encouragements. I mean, practically everything you buy these days seems to carry a warning on the label, doesn't it, or a warning on the box? Uh, and some of them are a little bit silly, so we get so tired of reading warnings, we just ignore them after a while. For example, here's one I found recently, Sainsbury's Peanuts. Warning, contains nuts. <laughs> Nightol Nighttime Sleep Aid. Warning, may cause drowsiness. And on a household DIY drill, not intended for use as a dentist's drill. Aren't you glad they told you that? Just what you were going to do, isn't it? And it's because so many warnings seem ridiculous to us, we sometimes feel like ignoring all of them. Like a survivor who's flagging down traffic that's heading, hurtling towards uh, a, a pileup of cars in the, on a foggy day. The Bible often warns us of dangers to our life, to our soul, because it's more loving to tell us the truth, even if we don't want to listen sometimes. So there are warnings in Scripture for us, which are good for us. And good leaders are not afraid to tell you what you don't want to hear, even if it makes them unpopular. And Paul was one like that. In verses 2 and 3 of the next chapter, Paul talks about his goal to see the church encouraged in heart, and united in love, with understanding, knowing Christ, where all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found. See, the church is God's plan A for the world, for the salvation of the world. There isn't a plan B. He hasn't got a plan B. It's the church or nothing. And when a church is doing well, you know, when lost people are getting saved, when broken people are getting mended, when lonely and excluded people are finding themselves in a family and finding community, and when God is just so in the midst of what's happening in a church, the church is a thing, I'd say, of unparalleled beauty. There's nothing else like it. It is, the Bible says, the joy of the whole earth. And that's why it was Paul's ambition to give everything he had to see the church flourish. And he says in verse 4 here, he says that a church which is robust, which is well discipled, well talk, taught, won't get taken in by smooth talk, which might sound nice enough. It might even be set to a pretty tune sometimes, but bad teaching will only, in the end, make the church sick before killing it altogether. 
He calls it fine-sounding arguments. Uh, And there are new ones in every generation. Fine-sounding arguments. The very first was in the Garden of Eden. It goes back that far. When Eve was asked by the snake, did God really say? God wouldn't say that, would he? You can't trust God. There are plenty of 21st century fine-sounding arguments as well. And you get into big trouble these days for opposing some of them. It's my right to choose. Love is love. The identity I say I am is not what everybody else can see I am. All religions have the same God. There are plenty more of these fine-sounding arguments where that came from. And tragically, we see boarded-up churches up and down the land. They are the legacy of fine-sounding arguments replacing God's word in the pulpit and eventually in the pews. That's what happens. But Paul says, no, I want you to know Christ. To know Christ. And there, that's where you'll find all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Well, as I end, I want to say that I'm I'm conscious this morning that I've spoken about levels of suffering today which are way beyond what you and I are likely to have to go through in our lives. It reminds me a little bit, actually, of what the former Bishop of Durham, Tom Wright, said about his ministry. He said, um, wherever St. Paul went, there was a riot. And he said, wherever I go, they serve me tea. (laughs) Uh, We do not suffer like our brothers and sisters in North Korea and Nigeria and other places do. But I do want to say that we are called to be courageous and consistent and steadfast in whatever circumstances God has put us in. And remember that our afflictions are absolutely not in contradiction with Christ's supremacy over all things. He is and always will be sovereign. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he does and will work everything together for good for you if you love the Lord and are called according to his purposes. Now, do you need to tighten your grip on that truth today, that God is sovereign over all? No matter what I'm going through, no matter how hard it feels, God is sovereign. Remember, by cheerfully bearing hardship, instead of grumbling, instead of complaining about our lot, By cheerfully bearing up, we bring glory to God and we stand out like stars in the night sky. There's very few more beautiful things than a sky full of stars. It's beautiful. Do you need to receive more grace today from God? A new anointing of joy maybe for when life feels really hard for you. And remember... The local church is the hope of the world. It was Paul's goal to pour out his life into seeing the church flourish. And he did it joyfully and without complaining. And he said he strenuously contended for it with all the energy Christ so powerfully worked in him. Do you need to renew your commitment today to God's great plan A for which there is no plan B, for the salvation of the world. 
and the blessing of the nations. Do you need some of that same power at work in you that Paul said was at work in him? Shall we stand to pray? If you're able to stand, let's stand to pray. Thank you, Lord. Well, for those of us who just need to remind ourselves this morning that you are sovereign over all things and to recalibrate our vision of your supremacy and greatness over all things. Lord, we come before you this morning. We ask, Lord, to renew our minds. Reset our vision, Lord, about who you are and how you are over all things. And if that's you this morning, you know God's speaking to you that you've lost focus on his supremacy. Just submit your thinking, your mind, your vision, your worldview to the Lord. Again, get things back in their proper proportion. And if you feel you've been a bit of a grumbler, like I confess I am at times. And you need to reset this morning, receive more grace to rejoice, actually rejoice whenever life gets tough. And to see it in the context of God's great plan And if you feel convicted on that one today, just bring that to the Lord. Just confess it. Say, Lord, I know that's not right. That's not the way it should be. Cleanse me, Lord. Forgive me. And give me today a new anointing of joy, I pray. Claim that promise that Jesus said, your joy will be full. My joy will be in you. Nobody will take it away. We can throw it away, but Lord, no one can pinch it from us. So Lord, we claim that again. Holy joy of the Lord, which is our strength. Lord, if I need to renew my own commitment to pouring out my life, my talents, my time, my prayers, into seeing your church strong and robust and built up and resistant to all the attacks of the evil one. Lord, I just give my life to you again. I want to serve you. And thank you, Lord, that you want to call me. What a God you are. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. And all these things we bring to you and ask, Lord, in the name of Jesus, and we thank you for him. Amen.